So, you know, I found this also a difficult lecture. I'm thinking that the CME committee kind of hates me, that they're giving me really hard lectures. So the title they sent me was New Therapies and Strategies for Acne and Rosacea. I went, huh, are there any? So I sort of dug through and I did some new therapies, but some oldies, but goodies. You know, a lot of the new therapies were during product theater. So when I speak for a pharmaceutical company, I'm really kind of uh, boxed in with compliance. So those questions you would have liked to ask during product theater, let's ask them now. And then again, you know, this was sort of a tough audience. Now it's a really tough audience because you're exhausted. You're like mentally saturated with medical information. Uh, you know, again, with my other lecture, I really wanted to talk about severity is in the eye of the beholder, and I think we really understand that when it comes to acne and rosacea. So first-line acne treatments, topical monotherapy, topical combination therapy, systemic therapy, chemical peels, light therapy, and cortisone injections. And we're going to talk about some of these. I also want you to get your cell phones out because we're also going to vote to get an idea of what we're each doing in our office. So I listed some of the roles and some of the retinoids that are available, some of the antimicrobial agents and why we use them. Available topical combination therapies. I really have found that Acania is as effective as Duac or Benzaclin with less irritation, but that's just my personal experience. I actually really do like Ziana. I do feel that the retinoid and antibiotic combination was less irritating, but I've really run into a lot of problems with insurances recently getting this product. Um, systemic antibiotics, you know, I loved tetracycline. So sad that I can't get it for a whole bunch of uses anymore. Doxycycline, minocycline, sulfa, Bactrim, I do give a decent amount of. Amoxicillin and oral erythromycin, not so much, but if I'm really boxed in or a really young acne patient, those would probably be my go-to choices. So what I want to find out from you is, what is your first line oral antibiotic? So let's vote while we talk about it. When you're going to give someone an oral antibiotic because they have anywhere from mild, moderate to severe acne, and you two have decided you want to give an antibiotic, do you typically prescribe generic doxycycline, branded Dorox, branded Monodox, generic Minocycline, branded Solidine, or generic Bactrim, which pretty much, at least in my neck of the woods, I write Bactrim, they're gonna get the generic trimethaphen sulfa. So what, what's your first kind of go-to medicine? I'm gonna take a drink and then after my drink, we'll uh, decide that voting is done. Generic doxycycline, I agree. I think that that's probably what I'm writing the most. I do feel that Dorox has less GI upset um, but I've just been beaten into submission by insurance companies and pharmacists and the busy day that um, I'm much less apt to quote unquote kind of protect the brand, which I do feel guilty about. Again, I think there's less GI upset. I like having the samples. I like supporting these pharmaceutical companies that are not only going to support meetings like this and professional organizations, but they're going to continue with research and development. I actually really do like Solidine for kind of similar reasons. I think the side effect profile, incidence of lupus-like reactions, headache, dizziness, uh, skin pigmentation, if you actually look at the data, it is really much lower than generic minocycline, but the cost is very high. And boy, pharmacists, they love telling patients the cost of that antibiotic more than I'd ever seen my whole career. Um, Bactrim's not my first kind of go-to one, I'm curious, the person who said their first prescription out of the gate for an oral antibiotic choice is Bactrim. Want to share with us any rationale as to why? No? No sharing of who picked Bactrim? Maybe the idea that like the others have been tried? I don't know. Sometimes I have a hard time adding benzoyl peroxide in. Okay. Hold on. I um, Bactrim, $4. Price. Price. That's a that's a good rationale because generic doxycycline is kind of pretty pricey. Got, got pretty pricey over the last two years. Um, so yeah, from four bucks cost. I mean, I can kind of understand, you know, why. Do you run lab work? Do you do a CBC with a diff on those? After a couple months. After a couple months. Okay. Or if they have an issue. 
Okay. So, you know, oral antibiotics, technically the recommendations are it's supposed to be a limited course in order to limit the emergence of antibiotic resistance. So the recommendations for acne patients is it is ideal to keep antibiotic use for less than six months. When you do get to the point where you feel like you can withdraw the antibiotic, we're gonna vote, because I, I, I know what I like to do, but you guys tell me, what do you ideally like to do when you have your acne patient under good control? Do you typically stop abruptly or do you typically prefer to taper? I think what makes, uh, for me, using antibiotics for more than six months is because a lot of these patients are, are teenagers. So it's not like in six months their acne is going to go away, or we certainly have these adult acne patients that acne is not going to go away. So I do try to explain to patients when I'm starting them on it that this is until we can get things under control with a topical routine, this is only temporary, we can't keep you on this long term. And I try to set that expectation up at the beginning so it's a little, little bit less like I'm stealing their security blanket. I fantasize, again, that this helps me when I have that discussion with the patient who tells me or I find out that they're really only doing the antibiotic because it's easier. And, you know, my analogy is I'll say to patients, you know, I wish I could take a pill to just lose weight and that I didn't have to put in the work of diet and exercise. But unfortunately, the world doesn't work like that. So I need you to give me 10 to 15 minutes a day of work on your skin, or we're going to run into much bigger health issues than you having acne right now. So it looks like we all try to taper off rather than abruptly stop. And you know what? There actually is no recommendation of which is preferred, which is ideal. Um, I think we're hoping that we don't have like a flare without the antibiotic suddenly, but there's no data to actually support that that is uh, preferable as opposed to abruptly discontinuing. So let's talk about isotretinoin for a second. So this is obviously beyond that mild patient, um, someone that either didn't do well on antibiotics or didn't respond to antibiotics. And sort of trying to hit on, again, kind of the, the pearls to take away in terms of acne treatment. You guys know that oral isotretinoin is technically approved for severe or recalcitrant acne, although that picture that I painted Friday, that patient that doesn't really have what you deem severe acne, but to them it's psychologically debilitating, to them it's severe, so I think it falls into that category. You know, again, technically, isotretinoin, if you look at the package insert, it says it's best absorbed with 50 grams of fat. And besides maybe the breakfast that we serve here at the conference, uh, 50 grams of fat can be a little bit difficult, maybe for you healthy, I'm going to get up at 5 a.m., runner people, maybe not so much for me. But uh, 50 grams of fat, the like estimated meal to get 50 grams of fat would be um, two fried eggs with butter, sorry, the, the number two got cut off, two strips of bacon, two slices of toast with butter, four ounces of hash browns, and eight ounces of whole milk. Um, I think a lot of people probably actually don't get 50 grams of fat, especially maybe that teenage patient, that adult acne patient who's maybe taking this with breakfast, which is sometimes nothing at all, or a cereal bar, or lunch, which, you know, who knows at school maybe what it is, or, you know, the person who gets a, a salad from home, maybe not like that awesome Panera salad, but even that probably doesn't have 50 grams of fat. Um, so we're probably not getting a total amount of absorption of our generic isotretinoin or amnestine or Clarivis or whatever your pharmacist decided to put in the patient's hand that month. How many of you just by a show of hands are verbally telling your patients, remember, you need to take this with a fatty meal? And then how many of you define what a fatty meal actually is? So a little bit of us, probably not you know, completely. Uh, it certainly would make a case for prescribing uh, Absorica, which I want to call Absorbica, uh, which I think that probably was on purpose. I haven't written it once, but I do think about it. You know, anecdotally, I would say I have more failures or repeated courses of therapy now than when I had access to Roche's branded Accutane. 
If you agree with that statement, raise your hand. So a good amount of us, okay? And then I look at, well, you know, why is that? It kind of doesn't matter because I can't get the Accutane anymore, but I start to wonder if some of it is because I'm really not getting the therapeutic dose that I think I'm getting. So I either need to really push the milligrams or I have found myself counseling more and more about the need for fat with the Accutane or the isotretinoin every day. We can't talk about Accutane without talking about pregnancy. So we're gonna vote. Have you ever had a patient become pregnant on isotretinoin? So the answer is gonna be yes, my patient. Yes, but it wasn't my patient, it was someone else's patient in the office. Or no, not for my patient and not for another provider in the office. So I've not even peripherally been in contact with a patient that has had a pregnancy on isotretinoin. Because we're all kind of sort of used to eye pledge at this point, I don't think it really stops us from prescribing it anymore the way it did those first couple years, right? So, I mean, most of us are in like a happy little category where we, you haven't had a pregnancy, nobody else in your office has had a pregnancy. Uh, a handful of us, it's been our patient, one of which on the, uh, when it was the Sticker Smart program, I had a patient become pregnant uh, in the Sticker program and then some in the middle where it's been someone in your office. So, you know, what do you do? Number one, no one is gonna be punished in this room because their patient became pregnant as long as you were completely fulfilling all of the tenants of the iPledge program. The iPledge program is not out there trying to kick people out and take away your ability to prescribe the medication as long as you're doing everything correctly. The people who have been removed from the program are people that are purposely trying to get around it, registering all women as non-childbearing potential, going into the office and they're answering their patients' contraceptive questions, okay? So you have to play by the rules. As long as you play by the rules, you don't falsify the date on a pregnancy report uh, the program realizes that there's still going to be patients that become pregnant on this medication, uh, and they're not going to punish you. Having said that, if you were to have a patient who became pregnant while on this medication, there's a couple things that you want to do. And let me see. Okay, I put it in a slide. So number one, don't panic. <laughs> no one's coming after you. I would contact your supervising doctor. The, um, I kind of listened to most of the, the medical legal issues uh, discussion today, um, but I don't know if he really wrote down or talked about if you actually have a discussion with your supervising doctor about a patient, you probably should document it. You may not document the details, but if it's important enough, did he, did he say this? If it's important enough that you had that conversation, I would put discuss the case with supervising doctor or one of the doctors in the office. And we're sort of sharing a little bit of the liability there, but that comes piece in part with the profit margin and the paycheck, in my opinion. So if you've had the discussion, I would document it. Um, contact the patient. Obviously, tell them don't take any more of the isotretinoin. You're pregnant. Come into my office. We need to discuss your options. If you don't feel comfortable discussing options and birth defects, I would call the local GYN and get them involved, get them a visit with the gynecologist OBGYN to discuss options. You do need to contact the iPledge program so this patient doesn't get any more of that prescription. And the iPledge program is gonna do a data analysis both on everything you entered in their office, which is fine. You're not gonna, you know, there's, there's no bad boys coming to check on you. They just want to look and make sure that they had no errors in their system. And they and encourage the patient to continue to follow up with iPledge. iPledge is going to reach out to that patient and ask, you know, were you counseled? What happened? What forms of birth control were you on? I think patients are also a little afraid they did do something wrong and they're going to be penalized. So there's not a high response rate for those pregnant patients as to what they did or kind of where the ball was dropped. So I encourage your patient, please fill this out. You didn't do anything wrong. You're not going to be penalized, but it helps us improve our system of how we're going to prevent other women from getting into the difficult situation that you're in now. 
Sort of surprisingly, I found a couple facts surprising about the pregnancies on isotretinoin. Um, does anybody think that the iPledge program has decreased the pregnancy rate on this drug? Yeah, it hasn't. Shh, don't tell the FDA, okay? The threat is if the pregnancy rate continues at this level, at some point they may take this either completely off the U.S. market or off for female of childbearing potential. The sad fact of the matter is, and I said this at an FDA hearing once and it was very unpopular, if we could alter sexual behavior purely by me talking to them and giving them pamphlets, we would have much bigger issues like AIDS and herpes and teenage pregnancy under better control. This is a healthy, sexually active population. We're doing the best that we can. The other fact that I kind of found surprising is the average typical patient who did become pregnant in this system was college educated and using two forms of pregnancy prevention and the most common answer was birth control pills and condoms. So I actually think the people I was a little more psychotic about was that like 14 to 16 year old patient who said abstinence and something but it turns out probably who I actually need to be even a little stricter and counseled is that 24-year-old uh, paralegal or 27-year-old paralegal who's using condoms and birth control pills, and probably that just means birth control pills, and maybe not taking them as she should or realizing there is a higher failure rate to birth control pills than we'd like to admit. So keep that in mind as you're going through your isotretinoin patients. So let's pretend that all of us are in that first category and we had a patient become pregnant during isotretinoin, okay? So patient returns to your office. She had to continue isotretinoin early due to pregnancy, which she terminated that pregnancy. And she now wants to complete a full treatment of isotretinoin with you. Would you treat her? Yes or no way? Has anyone had a patient present to their office with this history? Yeah, either because they became pregnant with you or they became pregnant uh, with someone, another prescriber. How many would treat her? How many would say, no way? So most of us are saying it looks like kinda no way. I have the opposite philosophy. And I, I've had patients, again, that one patient plus some others um, from other prescribers that I do treat. And here's my thinking. They're actually being honest with me, or it was my patient or someone else in my office. I had two other people in my office have pregnancies. Again, it's kind of with the sticker smart program. I feel like because I know this, I can be even more strict with them because I'm aware of it. Because the fact of the matter is, if they get enough no's or they even get one no, they're just going to doctor shop and they're gonna find another dermatologist and they don't give them that history and they're gonna get on the medicine. So I can overly counsel them, I can make them do that free counseling at the gynecologist, I can make them do additional pregnancy tests, I can make them bring their pill pack into the office with me. So I fantasize, again, that I can actually ensure compliance by the fact that I'm knowledgeable about this event as opposed to the patient becoming savvy and realizing they can go somewhere else and that somewhere else will not be knowledgeable of the event. But you have to be completely comfortable with your decision. So don't do that if you're not comfortable with it. So again, I just sort of went over that. Okay, so chemical peels, let's get back to some of the treatment options. I do like chemical peels. I feel like they really improve both inflammatory and comedonal acne. They really don't have a lot of benefit, though, on supernodular cystic acne, like someone who needs isotretinoin. It also helps treat scars. I mean, how difficult is that patient who they come in, they're like crazy. They're off the charts with their acne. You give them a routine. They come back however many weeks later. You walk in, and you're so excited. You're like, oh, my gosh, you look so much better. And they, they look at you like, what? Don't you see all these red marks still on my face? 
You're like, oh, okay, no, no, no. We're talking post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. We're talking scars. You looked like the surface of the moon last time I saw you. So explaining to those patients some of the difference, that's really where chemical peels are going to pick up both. This is a funny statement, but I actually find that chemical peels, excuse me, are really good for my cash-paying patients, my non-insured patients, because a lot of patients can pay for a chemical peel, or we actually discount chemical peels for our acne patients, like a light, easy, quick salicylic acid peel we don't charge that much for, as opposed to buying doxycycline or God forbid you try to actually buy a tube of any generic retinoid. Tretinoin would be like, what, 130 bucks for a tiny little generic tube. Um, so again, cash paying patients may actually prefer chemical peels and we may tend to sort of like be biased against them like, oh, they're not gonna do something cosmetic because they're cash paying. A lot of patients who have pretty decent jobs or disposable income just don't have $450 a month to pay for Highmark Blue Cross insurance. Um, glycolic acid, salicylic acid, lots of different uh, chemical peels that are available on the market. Again, we talked about it treating scars, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, decreasing pore size, and that's actually a really big issue for women because if you get certain makeup, it can light in those pores, make the pores look even bigger. And then really sensitive patients, and I think that's a little counterintuitive. Someone who says, you know, I use Differin, I was only doing it twice a week and I still got burned. They're so super sensitive, truly short, 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 short contact therapy with a known couple days of two or three days of redness or peeling may still be more desirable for them than suffering through trying to figure out an at-home topical retinoid. The other patient I love to do chemical peels on is the patient who really just doesn't care about their acne and is too lazy to do anything at home. And I would say this is actually where I have a lot of teenage boys coming in for chemical peels because who wants it to look better? Mom wants it to look better and the kid's just not gonna do it at home. Okay, mom, look, we've had two visits now. I asked you to bring the tubes back in. Clearly Johnny has barely even touched them. I ask him without looking at the tubes, tell me the name of any of the medicines you're on. He can't name any of them. He's not into it. You want it to look better? Okay, bring him in every other month for a chemical peel. It's gonna make it look better. You're not gonna have the office copay. You're not gonna have the copay at the pharmacy and you're both gonna be happy. He's not hearing a nag anymore. You're spending a little bit more with a lot less aggravation, okay? So light therapy, I really don't do too much light therapy for my acne patients. I kind of wish that I did. I do think that it helps really with both scarring. I think that it also um, helps with active acne. I think if you use it with sensitizing agents like Levulin, it really works well. I just find that's like the next cost level up and I just don't have um, that patient population yet. Okay. So, um, you know, who are good candidates for uh, different types of light therapy? Again, you can't tolerate oral or topical therapy. Interestingly, I do have a lot of my pregnant patients without photosensitizing uh, agents use blue light therapy, and I do think it really helps their acne. So, like, I give them Phenacea. I may give them topical erythromycin. It's just not getting better. I actually do find that the blue light therapy with no levulin, which is really the expensive part of it, um, will help control really horrible cystic acne during pregnancy. And then I give them a discounted rate because I'm not putting that levulin on. It also helps treat scars. And again, for some of these adult acne patients, it's gonna help hit some of the anti-aging properties, skin tightening, crow's feet, skin quality, et cetera. I certainly inject uh, cysts all the time, including on my patients as well as myself. I rarely break out, but when I do, I can't stop touching it. I'm totally a picker, a popper. I wanna put like Topicort on because I can't stand having a pimple on my face. And I'm sure that every patient I see sees me with a pimple. So I get in the mirror and I inject it with Kenalog. That's way too strong. So be mindful of potential side effects when you are injecting these cysts on people's face. What do you want to avoid? You want to avoid turning that temporary cyst into a permanent indentation or blood vessel formation on their face. The nice thing, you ever have a patient, you can't quite tell if it's cysts or they're kind of keloiding at this point in scars. You certainly could inject both of those and see some benefit. Although I find keloids, you really have to inject with such a high concentration to get improvement. 
So on the face, tell me your concentration of injecting. Um, tree, shrub, or lip. Matt Bruner made these up. So on the face, you inject intralesional catalog of what concentration? 2.5, 5, or other. So I tend to use what the majority of you use. I do use 2.5, but I've been using more and more catalog 5 at one of the offices I practice at because that's what the supervising doctor likes. He feels that uh, it gets better, uh, better um, reaction, better improvements, better resolution of that cyst. I just find myself injecting even like a teeny little bit less because I am nervous I'm going to get some of those side effects from it. But knock on wood, after a year, uh, I really haven't seen that. And he claims he hasn't seen that his whole like 15-year career. Who has had a patient who has indented after intralesional catalog on their face? Yeah, I had one. It was 2.5, ironically. So who knows if it was the cyst that re retracted, but luckily with uh, topical retin-A and massage, it did uh, flatten back out. So maybe it's not dose uh, dependent. For people who said other, so they're injecting intralesional catalog on the face with an other concentration, what's your other concentration? Is it higher or lower? Were you using even less catalog, or were you putting even more catalog on the face? No, not sure. Those three that went out on a limb? No? Okay. Maybe you'll tell us later. Here is sort of a busy slide, and this is an algorithm from the 2009 Global Alliance uh, Acne Treatment um, talking about if you have a patient who has mild, moderate, or severe acne and what should be kind of your first, second-in-line choice and what you're going to add together. I think the bottom line is that you kind of want to keep your oral agents for moderate to severe and that you always want to make sure you get a benzoyl peroxide and, if possible, uh, some type of retinoid in the mix. I think everybody's pretty much doing this. If this was like a basic Derm 101, you're in your first year of graduation, I could take this slide and break it down into why I give a mild, moderate, and severe acne uh, therapy for each of these, you know, something like a first choice topical retinoid and then benzoyl peroxide wash, like a 5% benzoyl peroxide would be a nice good starting regimen as opposed to someone that comes in with pretty severe, you know, nodular uh, acne. We might be talking about at least first choice oral antibiotic, topical retinoid, some type of like retinitis, retinoin, and BPO, I probably use like a combination product. So what's new to my acne regimen? This is actually, I only had like two slides when I started this presentation a couple weeks ago because I couldn't really think of anything that was super new this year. But this actually is one of my favorite new drugs. It's a cleanser called SulfaCleanse. Does anybody prescribe this besides me? I love it. I say I prescribe it, yeah, a couple of us, like every single day. So what is it? Um, this kind of reminds me of a non-smelling, did anybody used to use Clenia or Ovase? Yeah, this is like a scent-free version of it. I'm so excited about it, and it's not that expensive. Um, so it's sulfacetamide, a little bit of sulfur, so obviously you're not going to use this with your sulfa-sensitive patients. It's also got some green tea and aloe, so it has some anti-inflammatory soothing components to it. I've never seen anybody get rashy from it. Um, it's made by this company, Prugen, which I put on here, so you can go like Google them and ask for a rep or for them to send you uh, samples. They actually don't sample it, I'm sorry, so they'll send you rebate cards. It comes in a 16-ounce bottle, which actually is really pretty big. Definitely gets patients maybe six weeks of twice-day washing, maybe even a little more. Great for something like a pterosporin folliculitis or more crossover like pterosporin back and chest. I love it on patients' faces. Um, again, someone who were using benzoyl peroxide like in a combination product where they couldn't tolerate benzoyl peroxide or they couldn't stand benzoyl peroxide because it bleached everything. Um, I love giving these patients sulfa cleanse. The other type of patient I love giving this to is the antibiotic user that you're trying to get off of antibiotics and they're so nervous you're taking away their blankie. So I'll say to them, you know, I'm going to give you this antibiotic cleanser. So you're still getting antibiotics in the routine, but it's now going to be in your prescription wash that you're getting the antibiotic so that we can get the prescription antibiotics out of your internal system. So topical Dapsone or Axone, we talked about a little bit at the product theater. 
Um, I do like Axone. I like it especially for adult acne, but I do use it for teenagers who's maybe kind of gone through the gambit of um, retinoids and it's not working. You know that patient, and I find it a little more in adults, but sometimes the teenager where you're like, oh, you know, they come in with this vague history and you're like, okay, you know, you look at them, you're like, I'm gonna give you retin, and before you can even finish, mom is like, oh yeah, we try that. Okay, okay, do you have sensitive skin? Okay, well there's this diff, oh yeah, we've had that too. Why is it on the insect sheet? <laughs> you know, and you know you were a nurse, ask them, you're like, Okay, and then maybe throw out Tazerac, or you're just like, I'm just totally not even going to say another thing because I'm so sick of you interrupting me. So, you know, there's this medicine called Axone and a little bit less tried, so I do kind of like that. I also like their ad campaign. Have you guys seen it on TV? They're sort of targeting that adult female acne patient. They have a chick at a wedding. She's like a bridesmaid. Have you guys seen this ad? and she's like a pimple blown up. She's in her cute little bridesmaid's dress, like they're cute. Um, and all you can see is the big pimple, and she's like, everybody's looking at my acne, not me, which I actually do think patients feel. So I, I do think I have more adult acne patients who've seen that ad, and it resonates with them. Uh, this does not contain sulfa, so patients, I've had some pharmacists ask about this. Um, patients that are sulfa allergic can use Axone. Um, and again, we talked about this being good for adult acne. Make sure they do not use benzoyl peroxide at the same time. It will quote unquote, temporarily change their skin from yellow to orange in color. So when I say temporarily with quotes, that's because in some studies that yellow orange color has lasted up to 57 days after they stopped using the Axone. <laughs> oh my God, your acne patients are gonna yeah, so just warn them not to use it at the same time, in particular with a benzoyl peroxide cream, but even patients that are washing benzoyl peroxide and there's some on their face, I get nervous about it. So I typically have a patient use this after they have a different cleanser, salicylic acid, glycolic acid, that sulfa cleanse, something different. You know, what factors influence my prescribing? Certainly efficacy is part of it, but I'm gonna, let's face it, Ease of getting the prescription is huge. And oh my gosh, I, you know, why do we have sample closets anymore? Apparently I should have just had like four drawers for these cards nowadays. So let's face it, you know, existence of these coupons, oh my God, the mail away pharmacies, but that's, that's gonna be totally it. So I used to think, oh, I only have specialty pharmacies for the biologics. I think all these acne companies eventually are gonna have all specialty pharmacies that you do mail away. Luckily, patients are getting more used to it because they are used to mailing away their 90-day prescriptions. So put it in that sense. If you send patients to a mail away pharmacy like um, Philidor, do any of you guys use Philidor? Um, explain to them that they're gonna get a call so they don't think it's a scam and that this is just like patient, our friends or you that have heard of doing mail away pharmacies for 90-day supplies. And then I do try to periodically ask for the $4 or the generic cost list at my local Target and Walmart. And I do sometimes have to pick therapies off of there because that's all that patients can get. So strategy, you know, Dr. Baldwin, I kind of took out slides because she sort of hit a lot of this, is to try to evaluate how much their acne bothers them. So classic questions I do ask, um, especially a new acne patient. Is today an average day, the best day your acne has looked in months, or the worst day your acne has looked in months? And then I do like to ask, how much does your acne bother you? Again, like with my psoriasis patients, I love to have my patients bring their medicines with them. In fact, a lot of times that's how I know how many of my patients are actually in the waiting room. I'm really bad at remembering who my patient is, and at one office there's like four providers. So I'll look out in the waiting room because I'm trying to see how bad of a job the front desk is doing as far as actually getting patients back. And I'll say like, oh man, four of them, they, they have bags of medicine, they must be my patients. And then I go hang out more around front desk and they know I'm stalking them for my patients and suddenly my existence makes my patients get through registration a little bit quicker. So I would ask your acne patients to bring in the medicines with them and couch it the way I was talking with on Friday, that you want to make sure the pharmacist is giving them the best value for their dollar. You want to make sure they're getting the medicines so there's no medical errors. 
Um, you're also checking to make sure there's not generic substitutions. You really don't kind of want to tell them, I'm checking this to make sure you're compliant, because then they're going to be even less compliant and not bring their medicines in with them for the visit. And then obviously, there was a lot of emphasis on antibiotic resistance. I actually didn't put it in this slide because I thought we are going to talk about it at other lectures, but we're very, very concerned about antibiotic resistance. We want to be good stewards of our topical clindamycin. We don't want to see P. acnes get even worse or out of control. So you want to add things like benzoyl peroxide. You don't want to keep these patients on long-term oral antibiotic use. And discuss it with your patients. You know, there's so much in the media about MRSA. I think you can kind of tie it into that concept and patients may be a little bit more willing to be in a team with you to at least try to come off these antibiotics or to try to use benzoyl peroxide. You know, that sort of, I had struggled for a couple months of how to discuss that. I'd say, I need you to use benzoyl peroxide. Well, we already tried that. We tried proactive. Why are we paying you if you're just going to tell me to use proactive? I'd say, I understand that, but studies show that the antibiotics I'm giving you today in this routine, we have a lower chance of building up resistance. You've heard of resistant infections like MRSA, right? Well, I don't want you to get that, so just use the damn benzoyl peroxide, okay? So try to couch it in a way that makes them understand why you're putting the benzoyl peroxide in. Because they do hear you say benzoyl peroxide. It's like when you would write hydrocortisone 2.5%. Be like, well, I could have gotten hydrocortisone over the counter, right? I pay my copay for you. So try to remember when you're giving the benzoyl peroxide or even those combination products, explaining why you're giving it. I added a couple slides in as an oldie but a goodie. Um, who writes spironolactone in their office? I love it. I love spironolactone. Who does not write it because they don't know how to give it? A little bit, excellent, this is why I put it in for you guys. Okay, so spironolactone, great for women. I tend to use it more in adult women, but I do have teenage and actually young women on it. It was first developed in 1957 to help treat hypertension and CHF, which also, you know you have that mom who's like really nervous to put their kid on anything, especially, God forbid, birth control pills. I do think it makes some people feel a little more comfortable if you say, I'm going to put your child on a medicine that's going to lower some of the hormone levels they don't need. And this medicine originally came out in the 50s. Okay, I mean, and let's face it, if it came out in the 50s, there are going to be some unknown side effects. We'd probably have some knowledge of it. Um, the dosing is anywhere from 25 to 200 milligrams a day, and I'll go over where I dose start. It's a great option for those patients you're thinking maybe PCOS, although you should do a workup, so maybe a little heavy or a little unwanted hair, although sometimes that's hard to tell because we're like really removing it. So, you know, think about PCOS with your acne patients. So let's talk about starting dose. For those of you, which was the majority of people who said they used spironolactone, what is your starting dose of spironolactone? 25 milligrams once a day. 25 milligrams twice a day, 50 milligrams once a day, 50 milligrams twice a day, 100 milligrams once a day, or 150 milligrams daily. This is where you start, fresh out of the gate. Jeez, I think I'm being too conservative. I'm so excited you guys answered this because I've been wanting to up my dose and now I have justification. So maybe I didn't answer. So I start at 25 milligrams a day. Then I have them return a month later. If they're tolerating it, I increase it to twice a day. But according to the last slide, apparently I'm being a wuss. And I should really start at like 50 milligrams a day and then maybe go up to BID. I just sort of picked that arbitrarily. I'm not sure why. I don't think I've had any justification. So what is one of our lecturers talking about? Like if you can't justify what you're doing, maybe it's time to look at what you're doing. So again, dosing range everywhere from 50 to 100 milligrams a day. Studies have shown a 30 to 50% uh, improvement. I don't know why I said in adverse events. That was actually supposed to be like an acne. So if you're at 50 to 100 milligrams a day, spironolactone reduces sebum production, excuse me, at 30 to 50% improvement. Um, and I, that's not supposed to be there about adverse events, so sorry about that. And then at 100 to 200 milligrams daily, okay, Lesion reduction was actually 50 to 100% over three months. So I think I'm probably like under treating my patients and I should probably push up the milligram dose. 
It's safe to use with birth control. However, if you're using birth control that already has an antiandrogenic component of it, like Yaz or Yasmin, remember that three milligrams of this, which is typically what's in Yasmin Yaz, is equivalent to 25 milligrams of spironolactone, which actually means if you're really comfortable, you could use Yaz or Yasmin with spironolactone as long as you were keeping in account the idea that they're already sort of on 25 milligrams of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm saying yeses, okay. Women must prevent pregnancy because if they were to become pregnant and their pregnancy is a boy, that fetus is gonna be feminized and the genitalia is not gonna form appropriately. So it's pregnancy category C slash D. Um, high dose side effects, this is what we're doing labs for, the hyperkalemia. Menstrual irregularities. Typically, if patients have menstrual irregularities, your treatment options are add birth control pills or back down on the dosing. Orthostatic hypotension. You know, I do tend to take blood pressure measurements on these patients um, a little bit because my offices now are like really psychotic about meaningful use, so we're doing blood pressures a lot more frequently. So I figure why the heck not, but I definitely ask them things like, are you dizzy? Do you have any dizziness while standing up, et cetera. And then reduced uh, libido can be a side effect of too high of a spironolactone. So why do we worry about hyperkalemia? Let's take us back to primary care, back to when we went to school. Most importantly, fatal cardiac uh, irregularities, muscle weakness, fatigue. I have occasionally had a patient call and say they're on spironolactone, they feel fatigued. I think it's probably unrelated, but I have them stop it right away, and I do check their potassium levels, although technically the literature says if you even suspect hypokalemia, so like a patient calls you and says they have any of these, they're supposed to go to the emergency room right away. So for those of us who prescribe spironolactone, do you get baseline labs on a healthy young woman, no concerns over renal disease, they don't use salt substitutes, salt su substitutes have a lot of potassium in them, or other potassium sparing diuretics, ACE inhibitors or ARBs can also change the potassium level in people's bodies. Do you get baseline blood work? So maybe that 24-year-old, <clears throat> um, again, paralegal comes in, she's using topicals, she's not on birth control, she doesn't want to be because her mother had breast cancer and it scares her too much, but she's flaring with every period and she definitely feels it's hormonal, so you put her on spironolactone. Do you get baseline lab work? <laughs> It looks like the majority of us are saying yes, and I do ideally. I don't typically make them wait to start the medicine. So I give them the prescription, I give them the lab slip, and I say, why don't you get the lab slip done first? You're young, you're healthy, I'm you know, sure it'll be okay. If not, would four days of spironolactone do that much? Um, and then I'll call you if it's abnormal and I don't want you to take the spironolactone. So I, again, I do baseline. I tend to do a CMP, a complete metabolic panel, just because then I can safely, medical legally say I checked their kidney function and it was fine. After that, I only check potassium. I typically check about six weeks into it, then six months into it, and then after that yearly. Obviously, if you're concerned or a new spironolactone user, just you know do it more often. In 13 years, I've never had anyone have any lab abnormality. Has anyone had anyone with hyperkalemia? Okay, so one person. Was there someone over there? No, so like about one person. So it's enough to make you scared. A lawyer would certainly nab you. You know, like Dr. High was talking about, what is standard of care in malpractice? If they can find her or me who says, yeah, my standard of care is that I run labs, then you're SOL. If you do think someone has an endocrine abnormality like PCOS, besides sending them to the OBGYN or endocrinologist, this is at least my baseline lab work that I would run on them. I'm really not gonna in interpret it. If it's all normal, I'll say it's all normal, but if there's anything out of range, I say you really do still need to go to the endocrinologist or OBGYN. But personally, I like when patients with hair loss come in with labs that were ordered, especially if it's actually comprehensive labs, from the primary. So like I'd like to educate my primaries so that first visit is a little bit more effective that I already have some of the lab work done. So I'm assuming that the OB and the endocrinologist appreciate that from me as well.
So we're gonna talk about rosacea. Does anybody have any questions about acne or do you guys have pearls that you guys thought this year? Like why didn't Abby talk about this latest and greatest acne stuff? Um, I was wondering, do you do your hormone testing at a specific time in their cycle? Yeah, you know, it would be ideal, right, to do it in a specific time in their cycle, but I usually don't. Does that, does, you know, for the patient you're doing that hormonal workup, does anybody else do a hormonal workup before they send them out a little bit? Do you tell them to go at a certain point in their cycle? It's just sort of too hard. I know that's terrible. I don't know. I pro you probably should. And women on birth control pills, it's obviously not worth running these labs because they're going to be completely altered and artificial. So... It'd be ideal, but I don't. Okay, so let's talk about rosacea. So, you know, treatment strategies, again, I like to ask, how much does this bother you? Is this the best day? Is this the worst day? What am I looking at in terms of redness, breakouts? Mainstay of rosacea treatment is avoidance of triggers, okay? And when I talk about this with patients, especially a patient I'm diagnosing rosacea and you can tell they kind of don't believe me that they have rosacea. And I'm saying, avoid this, avoid this. And they go, I have spicy food and caffeine all the time and it doesn't flare me. These are just general triggers for everybody. And what we need to figure out is which one of these triggers are your triggers. So why don't you keep a daily log of what you've done and what you've eaten, and then you rate your acne in a scale of, or your facial rash, zero to 10, 10 being the worst day ever, zero being you have my complexion, okay? Um, typical triggers, spicy foods, caffeinated beverages. You know, they're actually questioning if caffeine is the cause or if it was actually the temperature change. So a very hot drink like coffee or a hot drink like tea may have actually been the trigger more than caffeine. Alcohol we know is a trigger. Chocolate, sad little chocolate. And then I call these the funny triggers because how the heck are you really supposed to tell a patient to avoid this? Your rosacea would be better if you avoided all emotional stress. So you should win the lottery and have no relationships with anyone. Changes in environments such as changes in temperature, you know, it's going to be 80 degrees out there. You walk in here, it's 60 degrees. Good luck with that one. Strong wind. Avoid wind. Don't let the wind touch your skin. And then exercise. That one I actually kind of do like. It makes, again, kind of a funny moment when I say, knew I didn't do it for a reason. Come on, look. Yeah. But for some people, it's a huge part of their life, so you can't tell them not to exercise. Sun is a huge trigger. Sun, even five minutes a day going in and out of your car. Because let's face it, we'll ask patients, are you in the sun a lot? Well, what's a lot? Well, you're in the sun on a daily basis? Oh, no, I work. Well, guess what? They go out, they get the paper, they get the mail, they pull out their big trash can, they go back in, they talk to their neighbor, blah, blah, blah. They're in their car, they roll down the window because it was nice, or how much UV is really coming in through the car window. So five minutes a day has been shown to be enough to significantly make that background redness of rosacea worse. So blocking that UVB is gonna help prevent that inflammatory cascade. So my general routine for patients with rosacea, I wanna give them the entire routine. So I'm gonna pick a wash for them. I actually kinda like these cosmeceutical, like green tea, anti-inflammatory cleansers, but if someone's really sensitive, I'll say, let's just use water or let's just use Cetaphil. Sunscreen every single day, okay? Topical prescriptions, which we'll talk a little bit about, and then makeup that's not gonna make the uh, rosacea worse, obviously easier for females than males. I do like a lot of that mineral makeup. I like some of the tinted green products, and I like things that have sunscreen in it again, so like Jane Aridol or whatever's gonna have even more sunscreen. And then I have them bring in not only prescriptions, I have them bring in everything. Because especially guys with ladies, I'm gonna give you a little insight into our world, we do a lot of crap in this neighborhood. So all of patients say like, oh, I just use Cetaphil. Okay, we'll bring in everything you wash your face with and in comes a loofah sponge or in comes a Clarisonic, okay? So they're not thinking about that. They're thinking, oh, well, she asked me what cleanser I used. Oh, do you ever use a mask? Oh yeah, we'll bring that in. How about do you use like an under eye wrinkle cream? Oh, I do, but I'm just putting it here. Well, that's the edge of the rosacea. So I have them bring in absolutely everything. 
And then I screen all my patients for ocular involvement and I put a little star there because most patients are not gonna say yes. You say, do you think you have ocular rosacea? I'll say, do you have dry eyes? Do you use any type of rewetting drops? Have you had any type of eye infection, pink eye, conjunctivitis? Do you find that you blink your eyes a lot, that you have a lot of crusties in the corners of your eyes? You'll actually be surprised how many of your rosacea patients say, yeah, I use rewetting drops, but I wear contacts. Is that ocular rosacea? Maybe, probably. So prescription options, I just called it the whole metro line. Sodium sulfacetamide, great place for sulfa cleanse again. I use that for my rosacea patients. I really like Phoenicia, and we'll talk a little bit about Merveso. So my first line prescription for acne is I, or for rosacea is I do like Phoenicia. Patients have to be told they are gonna have some irritation and stinging, especially if they can get through those first two weeks. If they have irritation and stinging, I tell them to bring it down to every other or even every third day as their skin gets used to it. The advantage is it's not an antibiotic, which is actually sometimes how I sell it to my acne patients that I'm using Phenacea on. I feel that Phenacea helps both with the inflammatory papules and the background erythema, whereas I feel like Metro, and Metro really, for me, it never did much for background erythema. It was just for erythematous papules. Maybe the sulfacetamide crossed over a little bit, but it was more so those erythematous papules. Um, and pregnancy category B, which also makes it a good choice for your acne patients. Uh, if they have a little bit of crossover of Sebderm, I would then, instead of Phenacea, put Metro or some Sulfa on it, because I'm going to kind of try to kill two birds with one stone. And then I tend to use more of the generic Metro because, for me, it's on a lot of the Walmart $4 or $16 lists in my area. 1% Metro Gel never really set my world on fire. About the only patients I give it to is patients who say what they did well with the 0.75 but not quite controlled. Then I may try to bump them up and see if it makes a difference. So let's talk about Merveso and feel free to ask me some of those questions that you guys couldn't ask during the product theater. She already talked about how it works. I don't necessarily know if it lasts up to 12 hours on the majority of my patients, but I do think it gives them great results at about 30 minutes to 60 minutes, and maybe lasts somewhere more in the like six to eight hour range in my experience. Benefit is it's really great for flushing. I've also given this to a couple patients who say when they're up and they're giving a presentation or something at work, or when they're going to talk to their boss about their contract negotiations, they know they just flush bright red. And I'll say, let's try it. I don't know. It's not any different than giving a beta blocker or a Xanax. And I've had some people tell me that they feel like it's made them look less flush, whether that's the power of placebo, I don't know. But I have given it to patients that flush who really don't have rosacea. The nice thing is the sample really gives them an immediate benefit. I find this a little frustrating with all the acne samples, and I never give an acne sample without me or my medical assistant saying this. This sample is just enough for you to see that you can tolerate this medicine. You are not gonna get the results from just this sample, okay? A topical steroid, I'll say you're gonna get an idea if this is gonna give you a little bit of relief. But for this product, I can say you're gonna know if this works for you or not and if you're gonna wanna pay it. The thing that she couldn't say during the product theater, which I think is important, if you look at the Merveso studies and the package insert, you are supposed to apply four pea-sized amounts. Who was aware of that? Who is telling their patients that? We are so used to one pea-sized amount for acne, rosacea, piccata, you name it. We're in that mindset. It's four pea-sized amounts in their studies. So it's a pretty generous supply, okay? I have found that I can use it, my patients can use it more than once a day. And during, uh, I wanna say like their phase three studies, the company did have some BID dosing with no difference in terms of like safety or constriction. It's like their nose got constricted, they had necrosis. Um, BID dosing is safe to use. So downsides are rebound. I would say I had maybe 5% of patients who said at that six to 12 hour mark when things were off, they felt like they were even redder. Yes, that may be true. Um, expectations. I mean, do you guys see that picture that she pointed out where the patient considered themselves a failure? I'm like, that looks pretty good. So 
Unfortunately, everything from my cosmetic patients to my rosacea patients think they're gonna put something on once and they're gonna have my colorless expression. And I have to explain to them, like, you know, you're probably, and I have a lot of blush on people, you're probably not gonna get down to be as pale as I am or the Botox we put in now, Miss 80-year-old, is probably not gonna give you my forehead in two days. Um, so setting the expectations for these rosacea patients that this is a chronic inflammatory flushing disease with some degree of infection that we don't know the cause. And because I don't know the cause, I can't cure it or control it completely. So what we're looking for is improvement and tolerability. My biggest issue with Merveso is cost. So a 30 gram tube of it runs about $266 on this website that Hippocrates uses for its quotes, GoodRx. And here's the manufacturing coupon. It says insured patients may pay as little as $50 per prescription. What does that sense even say? Imagine you got like a coupon for Bonton. If you come into the store, you may get a sale that's kind of good. I hate that sense. A lot of our cards say that some patients with insurance may pay as little as $50 per prescription. So I've had patients who really are asked to pay way more than that. Their card is probably the lamest. Um, although there are other cards that use this phrasing, you really have to read all the fine print. And then of all these cards, you just have to pray that the pharmacist is not like write one prescription below their bonus threshold of generics versus brand. And they're like, I'm going to get that Metro prescription out of her because this week I'm going to make my bonus. Um, so again, it's kind of all just a hope and pray and explaining to patients, you know, you may have to pay 50 or $100. The other mindset that I try to put things into perspective for some of my patients, and obviously this doesn't apply to everyone, cost is in the eye of the beholder too, but I will often have that patient who says, you know, I can't spend $75 on a prescription, who comes in with her gel manicure, her coach purse, her $85 highlights that she gets done every six weeks, her cute Marc Jacobs shoes, and she's just not in the mindset that a medical prescription, because she has insurance, should cost her that much. And I have to put it into perspective, I understand that, but we're lucky that your insurance even considers your redness treatable. And if you have gone to the clinique counter for this, if you add up what you put into your highlights in your hair, you may have to decide if it is worth $100 to have a tube that you can use on the days you know you don't want to be red. Off-label uses, I do like particularly Elidil for its anti-inflammatory effect, and I do think it decreases some of the redness. If there's crossover of Sebderm, it's definitely going to help these patients, okay? And here's how it works. Some problems, it can sting or it can burn. The protopic, uh, I think, works a little better, but is very greasy, so I might have them use that at night. Or that rosacea patient that got topical steroids from someone, you want to get them off the topical steroids. It's a great bridge medication. Obviously, you want to talk to them about the label concerns, particularly about Elidil, which does everybody feel comfortable giving the Elidil discussion for all their patients? Does anyone want to hear my Elidil discussion? Oh, you want to hear my, oh, okay, so you guys know I'm funny. So <clears throat> um, was when Novartis owned the medicine. They were looking at an oral form. They fed monkeys 3,100-gram tubes. So let me read that. 30 tubes every day, each tube 100 grams. They fed these monkeys 3,100-gram tubes every day of Elidil over months. After about six months, one monkey developed monkey leukemia. They stopped feeding it the Elidil, and the leukemia spontaneously resolved. Our U.S. media picked that up as Elidil causes leukemia. I tell my patients I use Elidil on my eyelids for blepharitis, for some dry skin on my eyelids. I feel very confident that there are things we can put on our skin that don't have the same side effect as if we were eating it. If you wanna experiment with this, go home and eat an entire jar of Vaseline 
and I guarantee you'll have 24 hours of the worst diarrhea you've ever had. If you put Vaseline on your skin, I feel very confident that you will not have a day of diarrhea. Following that line of thinking, if you just don't eat 30 tubes of this every day for months, I am very confident that you will not develop monkey leukemia. <laughs> so the biggest issue with using Elidil and Protopic for rosacea is the cost. And I really can't get it used off-label. I used to just kind of prescribe it, especially because there wasn't a generic and it would fly. And now I get more of these pre-authorizations where they want me to hang my hat on the fact that they have eczema. So maybe sometimes I like look other places, like are you dry anywhere else? And then I'm also like checking off from the EMR all these other body areas. I'm like, oh, I see your hands have some eczema on it. If you're ever really bad, you could use this Elidil on it. Oh, since you're already gonna have the prescription for your hands, why don't we try it on your rosacea? And when I go to hell or prison, please send me something. So, you know, oral therapy for rosacea, doxycycline or minocycline, I do think they both work, but I like doxycycline better. However, if you have a patient who tried doxy and they can't tolerate it, minocycline, I think, is an, a, a good treatment option. And we already talked about oration, how it's more of an anti-inflammatory than antibacterial, um, antibacterial uh, effect. And again, it's tough. Really need to emphasize to these patients that we're not curing it. And with any antibiotic, you want to go with the lowest effective dose. So out-of-pocket kind of cosmeceuticals. Again, I really do like green tea. I think some of the topical vitamin C products are helpful. Caffeine-containing products for some vasoconstriction, I've seen improvement. Probably my favorite this year is made by a company called Neocutis, which I actually like their skin brightening cream. I had one little patch of melasma that I fight, and it takes me right back to Snow White. So Neocutis, uh, redness-reducing pesh, I like. Sunscreen, sunscreen, sunscreen. I mean, IPL and lasers. If all of your rosacea patients, you could like IPL, especially at a really high setting. I think we wouldn't even use Mervaso, but you know, not everybody has the money for that. So take-home points, you know, remember that acne and rosacea really is the bread and butter of dermatology. And this really goes back to what Dr. Baldwin was talking about, and I do it too. I'm tired, I'm behind, I really hate EMR, so I really kind of want to work on it through the day, so I'm not doing it for an hour and a half every single night. So I'm busy and I see an acne patient, I go, oh, thank God, acne, five minutes. And really, I should be apparently faking an exam a little bit longer, definitely talking to these patients a little bit longer, and remembering that it really is the bread and butter of dermatology. And as PAs, it would really be great if all of our patients said, you know, I prefer to see the PA because they really spend time talking and engaging me about my acne. And again, ask patients to bring in everything. This obviously is a big point that I have found over my 13 years in dermatology. And again, don't get stuck in a rut. I think I am going to change my spironolactone regimen both from what you guys said as well as the other leaders that I was talking to while I was making this presentation. Any pearls from what I'm going to call you guys, the diehards who stayed to the end of the conference, does anyone have a rosacea product they really feel this year, or a tip, or an advice, or a phrase they use for their acne rosacea patients they just love and they want to share with each other? Oh, good. I have a pearl coming up. Yay. And then here's my email, you guys. Welcome to call me, contact me about anything. I just want to make a quick comment. I didn't say this at the lunch, but um, I used Mervaso 24 hours after I had a fractionated laser done on my face, and it got like systemically absorbed and caused like really like hypotension, dry mouth, fatigue, like really bad. <laughs> Sorry, I'm nervous. Um, yeah, so I didn't think much of it. I had a little redness. I was going to a family party, and then I got like severe dry mouth fatigue, and then my blood pressure was like 78 over X. I mean, for like a whole day. <laughs> Interesting. So, so you just think probably FYI. you had like increased absorption after yeah. the laser. Yeah, because they fractionated down in the dermis, and then it got systemically absorbed. So it's alpha two agonist, and it's a dilator peripherally. Yeah. So sorry, just wanted to. <laughs> I know. Kind of it makes me think of like the topicord I put on my face. Like we're such horrible patients. This is why they say don't treat each other. You know, don't treat yourselves. We do these horrible things to ourselves because we're brave. Go ahead. 
I don't have a pearl so much, but I'm wondering if anybody has used any of these medical foods, the Nicodan or whatever, and what kind of results you're seeing with that. I'm sorry, medical what? The, the medical foods, that are the vitamins, the Nicodan. Okay, like nicotinamide. Right, like that. all that. Yeah, yeah I mean, her po first question kind of answering, I hope you could all hear her was that she has had good results with some of the oral therapies you're talking about, the nicamide, nicotinamide, and saying it's a good transition for the patients you're trying to get off oral antibiotics, or that isotretinoin patient that you're worried about the flares to continue on with it. Um, and then again, kind of starting low, you know, I guess maybe that's the snail versus the hammer approach too, which I actually really like that analogy um, that you know, you want to see results because they trust you and then back down. But yeah, you obviously don't want to have side effects. So yeah, the other thing that I find is tough and it kind of makes me think of that is like the, you guys tell me how you handle this. So that patient who is a teenager and kind of just wanted some days off of school. So like they're back for the Accutane visit and you're like, have you had any headaches? Yes, I had to miss two days of school. Like, really? Is it like a blinding headache? Because I'm technically supposed to stop this medicine, so I make sure you don't have pseudotumor cerebrae because you're having headaches. So it's like a little malingering-ish. So like that, you know, young girl who like passes out or feels lightheaded during her period, and maybe I just started her on spironolactone, it's bringing out her blood pressure. You know, I don't know. It probably is ideal to be on the conservative side but balance that out with, you know, them trusting you and how quickly you can bring them back. So, I don't know. Questions or other pearls? I think we're done. Time out, we're done. So thank you guys, have safe travels. You got one more awesome Fungus Among Us lecture. <laughs>